Good morning. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. That's the banner verse for this section, verses 20 through 40 of 1 Corinthians 14. It comes to us in verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Not of disorder, but of peace. I would invite you to commit that to memory. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. What a great way to summarize this text this morning. Our membership should reflect, should labor to reflect the order of God, the nature of God, and in doing so, reflect God's nature rightly. We are to learn of God rather than our sinful selves, and we are to reflect the image of Christ as we're growing up in every way Christ, which means that we are to be correctable by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. It means that we shouldn't function as Christians exactly the same way on day one as we do on day 100 or on year 20. We should be a growing people. Now, that'll ebb and flow, and there'll be ups and downs, but we should be a people that, that grow up in every way Christ. And as we are growing up, we will markedly reflect the nature of God more rightly, even though we still are marred by sin. Out of the ashes we rise. God is bringing us from nothing to something. The greatest miracle indeed is the miracle of salvation because he took your cold, dead heart and warmed it up and made it alive. Amen? Amen. The benefit to growing in godly order via God's word about himself, the benefit to that growth is that you will proclaim a more true gospel to everybody. They will see a more true gospel that if you, then if you gave lip service to belief, but never actually searched out the precepts of Scripture deeply to understand what it meant to orderly follow and worship Christ and to walk more closely in the image of Christ and to be more godly, to grow in godliness. For godliness with contentment is great gain, Timothy says, the book of Timothy says. So I want to approach this text this morning verses 20 through 40, first by looking at 20 through 26 and seeing orderly services, like worship services. Secondly, I want to see verses 27 through 36, and I want you to see orderly gender roles, the relationship, the role relationship between man and woman. So orderly services, orderly roles, and then finally, the last four verses of this text, I want you to see orderly canon, an orderly canon of Scripture, the canon of Scripture, the Bible that you hold in your hands or that you're reading from remotely on a phone or that you read off of on the screen. The Bible itself is a canon. It is a rule is what the word canon means. It's a canon of Scripture, and so we're going to see an orderly canon. So three kinds of order that's birthed out of the very nature of God that's reflected in this text for us is orderly worship services, orderly gender roles, and an orderly canon of Scripture. And that's how we're going to take this uh, on its part today. I'm going to read the text, and then I will exposit it in that manner. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 14, I think beginning in verse 19 for context. So let's read along together here. As I read aloud, you read along with me, looking down. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words in church with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. I'd rather speak in church five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Paul's quoting the prophet Isaiah. 
chapter 28 there, verse 22. Thus tongues are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church, the whole church comes together, comes together, and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you, really is among you. Verse 26, what then, brothers? And we've covered this before, but brothers is a plural word that means brothers and sisters. It's all of us. What then, all of you folks, all you members, all you believers? What then? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. Indeed, a limiting on the number of tongue speakers, even in the AD 50s in the young church at Corinth. Verse 28, But if there is no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent, each one of them, that be Brothers and sisters, keep silent in church, in church, and speak to himself and to God. Verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, the first prophet be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Not an authority unto themselves there. Okay. Verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Remember, I told you this is our banner verse. It's found in the middle of the text. You want to lock in on that one. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And a hush goes over the crowd. Interpretation coming here in a moment. Hang with me. We'll take it on its parts. Verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? Clearly there's a problem in the first century at Corinth with women women shouting down the speaker and ecstatic manifestations of the gifts of tongues happening in the church in an unruly manner. But nevertheless, we still have to say, even if that was the, the cultural moment, we have to say, transculturally, what does the premise of this text mean for us? And we will get to that, but I thought I should foreshadow it just a little bit because of the heaviness of the straightforward reading of that text. Now verse 36 again, and we'll read to the end. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. A command of the Lord. Paul understands himself to be writing commands of the Lord, thus understands himself to be writing Scripture, which the prophets would be subject to, right? And this word is supposed to reach not just the ones it's already reached, but it's to go forward. It's to reach many. It's to go forth. We're missions-minded. Verse 38 is a staunch statement against folks that would deny the understanding of Paul's writings of Scripture. It says, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. You can kind of see the contours of my third point. There, the order of the canon of Scripture. Finally, verse 39 and 40. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Maybe not ever, at least not then, right? First century A.D. Verse 40. But all things should be done And catch this, because this is our banner verse repeated from verse 33. 
Say it with me. Decently and in order. Whatever the application of these gifts that were given to the early church, prophecy and tongues, whatever the application, it's not to be disorderly. It's not to be indecently or unharmoniously. We can agree on that much, right? This is a place where God-fearing, Bible-interpreting, continuationists and cessationists, as it pertains to those gifts, unite and say, in order, in decency, with peace, rightly reflecting the very nature of God. And so let me restate what we're doing here with with this passage this morning. We're going to pick up in verse 20, and we're going to see how we reflect God's nature with orderly worship. We are going to pick up in verse number 27, and we're going to see how we reflect God's nature with orderly gender roles, with interacting as male and female, especially in the marriage union, in a way that rightly reflects God's order, his nature. And then finally, with an orderly canon, rightly understanding this faith once for all delivered to the saints, not to be subtracted from or added to, that this book is to be interpreted, not altered. This book is to be interpreted, not altered. Whatever your understanding of the gift of prophecy and whether it has continued or ceased, you cannot believe that something that is said today would alter this book. This is delivered. Signed, sealed, delivered, it's yours. You interpret it, you don't alter it. You got that? And so let's go. Number one, we reflect God's nature through orderly, clear worship services. And there's a biblical reason, a practical reason, and a family reason. First, a biblical reason. We see here in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 21, that the Apostle Paul loosely quotes the prophet Isaiah 28, context considered. And in the context of this biblical reason from Isaiah, there was a people who thought themselves too wise to hear the plain ABCs of the prophet Isaiah's message. Religious leaders both in Samaria and in Jerusalem rejected God's counsel, were prone to get drunk and stay drunk, And they formed alliances with the wrong people, those that told them what their itchy ears wanted to hear rather than the truth. Now, the truth sets us free, does it not? Lies lure us in, they look good, and then they trap us like in a cage in our sin condition. The gospel frees us, though. Roy Kiampa writes it like this. He says, while unintelligible communication from God was a sign to his unbelieving people that the curses of the Mosaic Covenant had fallen on them, the powerful prophetic ministry of the church is a sign that God's presence has been restored to his redeemed and believing people. So there is a biblical reason. Kiampa goes on to say, Paul's expectation that the prophetic ministry of the gathered community will lead to the conversion of visiting outsiders who will respond by bowing down and worshiping God and declaring God really is in their midst. It echoes Isaiah and as well as Zechariah. Isaiah prophesies the conversion of Gentile nations in the time of post-exile Israel and the restoration of God's people. At that time, he says, various people will become Israel's servants and bow down to them and make supplication to them since God is among you. And they will say, there is no God besides you, for you are God, and we did not know it, the God of Israel, the Savior. So there is a biblical reason for us to worship God in a way that reflects his order. It shows we are his people, a repentant people, and a people that believes that God knows better than we do how we ought to conduct our affairs. And this gets back to what I said from the onset. If that is your operating premise, then you interpret this word and it alters how you grow and live as a Christian rather than you altering this word to to shape what you think is better than what God thinks. 
We know God by His Word, and so we interpret His Word and live in light of the clear teaching of His Word rather than altering the Word to fit what it is that we want to do. And this sounds easy to say in a proposition in a corporate worship service like this, but it's a whole lot harder to live when my cultural understanding of what is right and wrong bumps up against clear interpretation of God's Word now, isn't it? It is a whole lot harder to live that out with integrity and interpretive consistency out there than it is here. But we must at least say it here if we have any hope of getting it right out there. Amen? So there's a biblical reason from the prophets, as in the law and the prophets, from what we now call the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul is quoting that, and he understands himself to be adding Scripture to that as an apostle. He does not understand what's being said in the church at Corinth to be usurping the clear commands that he is giving and the commands that have been given by God in what we now know as the Old Testament. So there's a biblical reason of a repentant heart why we must worship in a prescribed gospel order. There's also a practical reason. It's the effect on unbelievers. We see this in verses 22 and 23. We see tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church, so think about the whole local church gathered out, if you need a kind of a statement to help you remember why we get together, here's a clear text of proof for why we gather out together. If the whole church comes together, and if all speak in tongues, or outs- and outsiders or unbelievers enter, they'll say you're out of your minds. And so they're preferring prophecy to tongues. And in this text, it's saying that there is an effect on unbelievers by how we order our worship together or disorder our worship together. I'm always kind of amused, at least Privately, I try not to laugh when people say it, but when, when I get to, as a pastor, I just don't tell people that I'm a pastor because then they treat me different. I don't like that. So I, I have a lot of pride. I'll play basketball with people for six months, and I'll never tell them I'm a pastor. and be like, you're a pastor? I'm like, yeah, wasn't it obvious? They're like, no, not at all. I'm like, okay, well, that's either A, really good, or maybe I need to act better. I don't know. Something wasn't right there, but I don't tell them, and then they find out, and then there's this, that, and the other. But a lot of times I'll hear just listening in, this disdain for the ordered church, for the organized church, this, this, that something in their past has caused them to have an issue with what they consider to be institutionalized religion. And, I, and I'm sympathetic to that to an extent because there's been abuses, there's been things that's been done wrong, and, and the sin condition is as far as the curse is found. I understand that. But, but I was just kind of amused under my breath because it's like, so are you a fan of a, of a, of a disordered church instead of an ordered church? Are you a fan of chaos instead of cosmos? Are you a fan of like of everything just being willy-nilly and crazy? Or, or you know, you don't take that logic to any other arena of life. And I think if we go dig just a little bit deeper, uh, neither is it practical nor biblical for us to prefer a disordered church. I just I really want a disordered church. Well, what does that even look like? I mean, the judges says chaos is when every man does what's right in his own eyes. Let's just all do what's right in our own eyes. I mean, the Apostle Paul is clearly speaking against that attitude here. When we come together, there's order. Whatever gifts are extant or not, it's in order that we operate. There's a biblical reason for this. It's a repentant heart. There's a practical reason. It's concern for those unbelievers and new believers that are coming. It's for those, even for those outsiders that are coming to belief. Prophecy that endures is true. It's in God's Word, as we read from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 earlier. God is speaking by His Word. Whatever else prophecy is today, if it is spiritual impressions and testimonies, our nomenclature should not confuse the canon, as the, uh, that is the law of the prophets and the apostles' writings in the Old and New Testaments, with whatever we say here. But that's point three. I get ahead of myself. There's a practical reason. It's we care about the, the others. We care about the outsiders. We want them to hear the gospel. If you're with us this morning and you're an undecided person with spiritual things and with Christianity, we welcome you. And we believe that the prophetic word, the faith once now delivered to the saints, rightly interpreted to people that God is drawing to himself by his spirit. We believe that you will resonate with this 
in ways that you wouldn't have even thought you would have. And we believe that by preaching the word for believers, unbelievers, hearing the orderly worship service and the word taught in a gospel order of worship where we sing the word and pray the word and preach the word, we believe that you will be drawn in by that means of grace and that you'll be saved. And that's a miracle. And we like it, we like it that you're here. You don't have to agree with everything that this says or that I'm trying to say in interpreting, hopefully rightly, what this says. We want to, to, to feed you and to see signs of life. And so we order our worship services for believers. Some people believe that in this saying about what's for unbelievers and what's for believers, that the Apostle Paul is once again taking one of their phrases and pushing back against it and setting them straight. And if that's the case, it would make sense why the, the language pattern, the grammar of the thing is a little clumsy. Maybe that's likely. He says that tongues is, uh, at least I think it's what he's saying, is, is uh, for the unbeliever just hopeless, it's, it's, it's judgment. It's, it's something they don't understand or they understand themselves to be on the outside looking in. He says prophecy is a clear word here for believers, but also we think having a powerful effect on unbelievers from the standpoint of it's clear. It's clear for the person that is hearing it. It's not gibberish. It's clear. And tongues that was interpreted would effectually become prophecy because it would be clear, right, instead of just gibberish. He's preferring clear speech to unclear speech. He's preferring gospel to gibberish, is he not? That's what we're hearing, I think, in the right reading of this text. So there, that we need in this first point before we move on, we need to understand that it's when we come together, we are to be orderly and reflecting the nature of God by that order. It's when we come together, it's not if we come together. The expectation is that we will come together to sing and preach and pray the word. At the very least, none of us should be selfishly seeking ecstatic manifestations of the Spirit, but rather we should eagerly strive to excel in building up the church, chapter 14, verse 12 says. And chapter 14, verse 26 states, let all things be done for building up. It means each of us should bring something to the service, like you'd bring something to a potluck dinner. You aren't simply a consumer in this service, but you've studied the revelation and you've sang and you've hopefully prayed all week and you've engaged the sermon card that lists the text that we hope to preach before we preach them. And you've prayed through the directory, if you're a member, and you've, pursuing, you've pursued meaningful membership. And if you're not yet done that, we would invite you to pursue meaningful membership and to join in on what I'm talking about. But my point is for believers in this statement, bring something to the potluck on Sunday. I mean the worship service, but I'm using a metaphor. Bring something. Don't, don't just show up selfishly looking to consume. Certainly we get something for ourselves when we come to church. But if that's the sum total of your motive in coming to church, you've missed 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. You've misunderstood the context of the corporate worship. We don't come just for our family. We come for the family with a capital F. When we come together, it's that God's going to do something for all of them, and somehow I'll be swept up in it, and it'll be good. But this personal gifting and this my gift and my, my building up personally to the neglect of the family with a big F is exactly the, the marrow of the problem that the Apostle Paul is addressing here. When you come together, build up the church. Oikidamas, build up the house. Build it up. Don't tear it down. The way to tear it down is to come in looking myopically at yourself in the mirror, at simply what you think you want rather than what God wants to do by his spirit to his people by his word. And you say, well, how in the world am I ever going to get what I need if I come to church like that? And I just simply say, God's ways are higher than yours. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. That's also in the prophet Isaiah. And he's doing a global mission thing that's bigger than what you understand. I hate to break it to you, but you only see a part of the picture he's painting. So you got a choice. You got a choice beside but between thinking that you see parts that you don't see and trusting God and taking him at his word for how you do your business. If you do that, you'll do your bit. I'll do my bit. We'll do our part. We'll bring a dish to the potluck. We'll contribute and we'll see that God is painting a far more beautiful picture than we could have contrived on our own. Do you understand? Whatever gift he's given you by the Spirit is for the building up of the body of Christ. It's not just for you. It's not so you, you get a sense of, of, 
I got what I needed for just me. It's always for us, plural. That's what this is about. So the first point is that we reflect God's nature to a watching world through how we organize our worship services, how we worship together, which is predicated on beginningly us just simply being here. Now, before I go on to points two and three, which will move more quickly, three more so than two, I want to offer a quick excursion on continuation and cessationism this so-called controversy amongst evangelical churches. I will say that continuationists tend to paint cessationists as against miracles and healing and supernatural works, and that is not accurate. Honorable cessationists believe in, they believe in healing and God's miracles and supernatural works. And if they don't, then I believe that they're missing out on what the Scripture says. But that's, that's a caricature that doesn't fit. And I will say that cessationists tend to paint continuationists as prosperity gospel preachers, as pew jumpers, in the worst possible light, as all egalitarians, as disorderly, and that's not accurate either. Now, that's true of some, but it's not true of everybody that is a continuationist. I can point you to churches that don't operate that way, that, that do believe in the, continued, the continuedness of these gifts. You can find them in each camp. Now, I'm really referencing previous sermons, and so if you're here today and you haven't caught the last two or three, this may not make a lot of sense, but I feel a need to offer two more sentences, and I'll get back to my sermon proper in terms of my points. Amongst evangelicals who believe in the inerrancy of God's Word, again, that's point three coming up, brothers and sisters see that the individualization of the gift of prophecy to have ceased with the closing of the canon, and others who believe that the canon is very much closed but form a prophecy, testimony, continuing kind of a view based on interpreting these passages can be good brothers and sisters. The better of these believe it must be done under the authority of male leaders, elders in the church as we know them now, never uncontrolled in the expression of these gifts, never selfish, never interrupting songs and sermons, always orderly. So I wanted to offer a brief paragraph on continuationism and cessationism and where the caricatures are and where the rails are and what it looks like to be in the body of Christ um, and able to, able to figure out what is essential and non-essential matters in, in our church. At the very least, when we read these passages, we see the limiting that is put on chaos, right? There is no room for chaos. Order is the marrow of this text. Now, our second point is that we reflect God's nature through orderly, clear gender roles. So if, if you thought that I was going to get away from the difficult point after getting past point one, you thought wrong because I moved from, I moved from the so-called charismatic gifts to uh, gender roles in the home and the church. And that's, that's, that's uh, never a, uh, something that you would pick if you were not a consecu- committed to consecutive exposition of the Scriptures, but we are. And so let us now look afresh at verses 27 through 36, and I'm going to read them. I think it'll just be helpful to read them and then make a few comments about it. Um, Here's what it says. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. So a limiting to who all speaks in the service in the early 8050s, first century church at Corinth, and how does this apply to us? Now, uh, verse 28. If there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church, each man and woman for that matter, stay quiet, in the church, uh, and speak to himself and to God. I'll stop after verse 28 and just say, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is keep your mouth closed. There's a lot of virtue in quietness in the Scriptures. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Right? Now, it is true that we have a wordy gospel. It is also true that we live in the information age where everybody thinks they need to be heard. It's called social media. And sometimes one of the most spiritual things you can do is just be quiet, deliberate, think, consider. What happens is we obscure the clear word of truth with many words, if the words are meaningless, in attitude, or even worse, in content. So uh, verse 28 is a plug for silence of both men and women, but he's particularly going to talk about silence as it pertains to a certain kind of talking amongst women, and so we're going to address that. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak, And let others weigh what is said. Assumedly, other prophets weigh what the prophet said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first one be silent. So if this is a new revelation, if it's a new prophetic utterance, verse 30, then the first speaker would have been quiet 
and the second one would speak, and then they would weigh it before they got back to whatever the first one was saying. So you can see where this, this type of expression of prophecy, you can see where those that think that it vanished with the gift of the apostles have, have kind of a sense with that. I've made the case last week where continuationism has a case. I want to make the case this week as well where cessationism has a case. You can see where that doesn't seem to be in keeping with something that we would do today with a closed canon of Scripture. Keep in mind, no matter your position on that debate, the canon of Scripture was very much open in the A.D. 50s in a way that it is not now. With the death of the last apostle, we got no more Scripture. You understand? That's the problem that the Mormons have. We don't have a continuing revelation. We don't change this thing. We don't alter this thing. We interpret this thing. Remember that. Abiding precept. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, verse 31. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn to be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. Very curious verse. We had more time. Very helpful. Verse 33. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches, for they are not... As in all the churches, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it with you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? Now, question is, does it say anywhere in the law that... Women are not permitted to speak in the gathering of God's people. Does this say anywhere in the law, and if you find that, bring it to me, that women can't talk when God's people get together? I don't think so. I don't think that in the law it says women must be silent every time groups of believers get together to bring worship to God. I know in the New Covenant it does not say that, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, in the vein of Acts 2 and Joel 2, you have women who are clearly speaking in the church service. What are they doing? How do we know they're speaking? They are prophesying. Do you remember that from that sermon from 1 Corinthians 11.5? So either A, this canon's whacked up. It's, it's not right. It's got things in here that shouldn't be in here. It's glossy. It should be out, not in. Or B, we are forced to reckon the harmony of 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Corinthians 11. I prefer the latter, don't you? Now, if we assume that the Apostle Paul wrote this book and therefore wrote chapter 14 and wrote chapter 11, and I do, do you? Remember, I told you my third point was the shortest one because we're like hitting it all the way through. Then if you assume that, then you assume that when you read 1 Corinthians 14, he's not all of a sudden deciding he didn't agree with what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 11. Women should be silent in the church in an absolute sense and never speak. Now, if I was convinced of that would be one thing, but I'm not. What I think this text is saying, I think a fair interpretation of this text in light of all things and not just some things, is that women clearly prophesied in the early church. And if you think that the gift of prophecy had a certain time frame and meaning and it stopped, then you might say women now would be reading the prophecy in the church, which we have right here, right? If you believe in some different type of prophecy that's not Scripture giving, then women would prophesy but not give Scripture. Obviously, because the Scripture's closed. What I think that the Apostle Paul is speaking out against here, forcefully, is the problem of women weighing in on the interpretation issue of the prophecy. And that makes sense in light of the context and the context, because there is an issue here with who is interpreting the prophecies as they're given. And I think that's a fair way to read this, it, and let's, let's just read it that way. God's not a God of confusion, but of peace. In all the churches, the women should keep silent in the churches with regard to the weighing and interpreting of prophecies. I think that's the implied is my interpretation of it here as I read through it. it. The woman should be in submission as the law says. Now, the law does say that a woman should be in submission to man. Headship and submission is in the law. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home particularly with regard to the interpretation of prophecies as they're given or controversial issues that are discussed now in the faith once for all delivered to the saints, the prophetic word that you have in your hand, the canon of Scripture. And, and he says there, it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. I think it's shameful for a woman, a wife especially, to speak in a way that surprises her husband in church. 
that does an end run around him, that kneecaps his effective leadership in the home and in the church. That's out of order. That's not headship and submission. That's, that's running around the order that God has placed for the home and for the church with regard to gender roles. It's not that the woman might not have a higher IQ. She very much might. It's that God knows that we will have a tendency as men to shirk back from spiritual things and to just, I'll let my wife take care of that. And in fact, this is a text that says, no, no, no. When she has questions, it's not just that she might talk to you at home about it. You should expect her to, and you better dig for answers, guy, because you're going to give an account to God for whether you played loose with spiritual things or you dug into the prophetic word and you had an answer to give whenever she came to you. Well, maybe she's got a better answer than you, but you're still supposed to be able to interact with her as your wife. And you're supposed to say, you know what, I think you're right, honey. I'm going to tell them at church about that too. Because I think that's the right way to understand the prophetic word. Now, I think that's the best interpretation of this. Uh, the Pillar New Testament commentary offers a heading to this text like this. as specific directions regarding the practical application of Paul's teaching in worship gatherings. General application of a church. Everyone ministers in an intelligible manner for the edification of the church. It says, in the central section, he addresses the way in which tongues and prophecy may be exercised in ways that are consistent with the peace and order which reflect God's character, the norm with which governs the whole passage. I think that they really do get at it right there. These are orderly, clear gender roles. There's commonality amongst all churches everywhere in all time. There's also differences. So what from this is transcultural and what is cultural? That is a question. Men have already been commanded to be silent in this passage, verse 31. All in good order, the women seem to have led the way in this chaos, prophesying as women were in the new covenant. They were running roughshod over good order, and the apostle Paul sets them straight with commands on what's essential and what's not essential. Now, we can't just throw the whole thing out of the Bible, though. 1434 jives with the whole of the New Testament import. Wives, submit to your own husbands, 1 Peter 3 says. It's a helpful passage. I'm just going to read a little bit of it to you, 1 Peter 3. Don't lose your spot. Just listen if you don't want to turn to 1 Peter 3. I already have my Bible marked uh, for quick turning. I think this would be helpful. Just listen to how this reads. I don't think Peter and Paul are anything but harmonious on this. Uh, it says, 1 Peter 3, 1, "...likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands." See, headship and submission. Then it says, so that even if some husbands do not know the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wife. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. So there's even a word there about what if your husband's not a believer and how do you interact with these gender role relationships that are rooted in creation, not in culture, as 1 Timothy 2 says. Verse 3, do not let your adorning be external the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold and jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of the quiet and a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how holy women who hoped in God to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Then it says something about Abraham and Sarah. I don't have the time to get into. And then verse 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, meaning you're physically testosterone-filled and on the main bigger than her. There are exceptions. Since they, they are heirs with you in this one flesh union of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So there's something about peace and prayer and a one flesh union and a man and a woman, and there's something that we, we really lose if we just read this and be like, well, that's the stuff of Al-Qaeda. Well, that's not even real. That's not, it can't be something in Christianity. Well, it is. If you understand how to interpret it and apply it in the text, you have to think about who first got it and now what it means for us. And I hope that that helps you understand that the whole New Testament import supports headship and submission with husband and wives. Ephesians 5, for example, 22 to 33. Go read that this afternoon. Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Or 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. So that, that, that whole New Testament import gives us that, but it does not give us that women can't talk when we get together. That's not the whole of the New Testament import. So interpretation matters here. 1 Timothy 2.12 makes clear that the authority of elder, the office of elder in the church is reserved for qualified men, never women. When a woman takes the office of elder in a church, she does so in defiance of the clear teaching of the New Testament. There's a way of reading this that makes silence valued. 
It's clear that women are supposed to be speaking in our gatherings, but they need to be silent with regard to interpreting the prophecies given to the church. Leave that to the leaders, which will soon, after the apostolic age, be always called elders in the church. Let them interpret the word of God from here. And if you want to discuss these things, talk at home, wives and husbands. It would be healthy. It would challenge your husband to not be lazy with the word, but to be disciplined in the study of the word. The word didn't just come from you. It goes to all the women, all the churches, everywhere, in all time. So let's not go nuts trying to gloss this out of the canon of Scripture. Again, point three that I'm about to make short work of. There's no need to. It's limited by the scope of 1 Corinthians 11 to 14. We can't redact Scripture. It's God's revealed word. It's orderly. It's for His purposes. Even if our culture does not understand it, we still verify it, do we not? This is the word. Not to be adapted, only to be interpreted. What a great, great application for us as husbands and maybe future husbands to grow in the word so that our conversations at home can be fruitful and helpful. And women, what a wonderful, wonderful application for you. Don't let your man be surprised in public by that which you didn't talk about in private. Don't kneecap his leadership. If he's a deliberate thinker, let him deliberate. Don't kneecap him in public. Talk at home. Talk about these things. I've seen both dangers. Orderly, clear gender roles in the home of the church reflect the very nature of God to the watching world. Try it. Live it. Honor God with this. Thirdly and finally, after orderly worship services and orderly gender roles, let's do orderly canon of Scripture. Canon means rule, the rule of Scripture. We have 66 books in the Scripture. We are Protestant, not Catholic, in this way. The church does not make the word. The word makes the church. This word made us happen. Christ the word, giving us the word, guiding us by the word, made us happen. We are Reformation-era Baptists, meaning we believe in Scripture alone as our main source of authority. No experience, no tradition, no reasoning should rise above scriptural interpretation for how we view the world. Truth belongs to God, and he has revealed a measure of it to us. All that we need, a sufficient word, a clear word, an authoritative word, and a necessary word for us being built up or growing. Paul is writing. He understands himself to be writing. He's writing clear commands of Scripture. Look at chapter 14, verse 37. I am writing to you. The things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. You do not say that unless you understand yourself to be writing clear commands of the Lord. And where do we find clear commands of the, world, of the, of the Lord? But in the Word of God. This is where we find clear commands of the Lord. So he understands himself to be writing that. And he said, well, you know, I think that's just Paul. I don't think anybody else would understand that. Listen, folks, this is the danger in red-letter Bibles. This is all Christ's words, not just the direct quotations of the incarnate Christ. We'd have to obliterate the Old Testament and all the Pauline epistles and the general epistles as well, the Catholic epistles. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. This is so helpful. So helpful. 2 Peter 3.15, or just listen if you don't want to turn. 2 Peter 3.15, actually 14 through, I think, 16. It says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent and be found with him without spot or blemish and at peace. See this emphasis on peace, just like in Corinthians? See, Peter and Paul are harmonized here. Verse 15, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. What is the Apostle Peter saying here? Implicitly, Paul wrote Scripture too. Paul wrote commands of Scripture too. If you want to say Paul's scriptures aren't actually, his commands aren't actually scriptures, why don't you just say mine are not actually scriptures? He says, Paul wrote to you too. And verse 16 of 2 Peter 3 says, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some hard things to understand in them. And you say this morning, right? Amen? I mean, there's kind of some hard things to understand in the stuff that the Apostle Paul writes. I mean, he becomes the chief interpreter of New Testament Christianity. There's some hard things. That's why we had to do a, some, some thinking this morning with the text to make good application. 
There are some things that's hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures, 2 Peter 3.16. Peter sees Paul's writings as scripture. This is why liberal theologians will say 2 Peter wasn't actually written by Peter. Because if Peter actually wrote this, you have to affirm Paul. And if you actually have to affirm Paul, you have to affirm what Paul wrote. And if you actually affirm what Paul wrote, then this whole gender role thing sticks. And if the whole gender role thing sticks, we're a bunch of Neanderthals that can't get along in the modern world. Don't you see? So a lot rides on whether or not you think the Scripture means what it says and it was written by who says it was written by. And I think Peter wrote Peter and I think Paul wrote Paul's stuff, okay? That's what I think. And this is what it says at the end of 2 Peter chapter. Three, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow, 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 grow. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Second Peter says, so we're to grow. That's the whole point of his sermon is that we might grow. We're asking the Lord that we would grow. Now, Second Peter has something else in it that's helpful for our sermon and our third point over an understanding 1 Corinthians 14. We've seen that the Apostle Peter affirms the Apostle Paul's writing commands. He's writing Scripture. Listen to what 2 Peter chapter 1 says. It says, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Verse 16, for 2 Peter 1, 16. For we, ostensibly the writers of Scripture, we apostles for sure, right? Like Peter, like Paul, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, referencing the transfiguration, perhaps the great miracle of the Gospels there, aside from the resurrection itself. Now, listen to how this goes, though. Verse 19, And we have something more sure than an experience, than a sign. Listen to what it says. What is it that's more sure? Verse 19 of 2 Peter 1. The prophetic word. Do you see that? 2 Peter 1, 19 for the info. The prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Friends, what are we supposed to pay attention to? The prophetic word. Where do we find the prophetic word? Right here in the canon of Scripture. Both the writings of Peter, the writings of Paul, everything in the 66 books of your Bible. This is the word of the Lord. This is thus saith the Lord. We don't alter it. We interpret it and we apply it to our lives for our growth. And it says here in Second Peter, very helpful stuff. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So how do we get this scripture? How do we get it? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So you got this because men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that? If you don't, I can understand I mean, with human reason. How in the world can a man ever do anything like that? Answer, he can't, but God can. You say, well, I could never do anything like that. You're right, you won't. The scripture of canon of scripture is closed. You won't do it. But guess what? God has enabled men in the past to be carried along by the Holy Spirit to write, say, Isaiah. Isaiah wrote Isaiah. Who wrote Isaiah? Isaiah did. Peter. Who wrote Peter? Peter did. God carried Peter along to do it. Do you see? And you probably see part of the cessationist argument here where the prophetic word, at least the nomenclature of prophecy, is about the giving of the word. And I hope that that encourages you and helps you. As I gave some credence to the continuationist argument last week, I hope that it helps you see a little bit more where cessationists are coming from. Now let me go back to 1 Corinthians 14 and end the sermon right there with those last couple of verses. I hope that those cross-references in Peter are edifying and helpful to you. And don't forget that cross-reference in Hebrews that we read early in the service as well. Now, chapter 14, verse 38. If anyone does not recognize this, 1 Corinthians 14, 38, if anyone does not recognize all this, he's not recognized. Don't recognize him in the church. Don't recognize him when he speaks or if, when she speaks. So my brothers and sisters, earnestly desire to prophecy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. At least in the 1850s, do not, do not forbid speaking in tongues and earnestly desire prophecy. Earnestly desire it today if it's not Scripture. If you believe the gift has ceased, earnestly desire prophecy where you now have it inscripturated in the words right here. 
but earnestly desire prophecy, the prophetic word, earnestly desire it, and don't be cold in your orthodoxy, regardless of your view on, on the uh, continuation or cessation of these particular gifts. Don't be cold. I mean, at least you believe in spiritual utterances, right? Don't you believe in the supernatural? Don't you believe in miracles? Don't you believe in healing? I do. Whether or not I believe it's an individual's gift in this epoch in the history of God's people does not, does not, it does not communicate that I wouldn't believe that it actually is happening. Maybe through the group prayers of God's people on the mission field, etc. But even if you believe in the individualization of the gift, I will say this. Don't subject whatever you're doing. Don't, don't let your, whatever you're doing be subject outside of this. It should be subject to the Word of God. And be orderly and be respectful of the leaders of the church. And work with the people for the building up of the body, not just for I, myself, just me and my little family. It's for the family with the big F. Do you understand? I hope this edifies you this morning. This is all for for building up. It's for good order. It says in verse 40, and this is our focus back again, and it's very important to read it at the end. All things should be done decently, harmoniously, and in order. It should be done orderly. Like a good song with harmony parts is our gospel order of worship to be, is our our understanding of the role relationship between man and woman to be, is our appreciation for the canon of Scripture to be. We are to operate in order. Nothing takes place that, that is out of order. We want it to be orderly so that it rightly reflects God's nature. We don't have apostles, but we have the apostles as witness we're going to find in 1 Corinthians 15 next week. We didn't live to witness the resurrection, but we bear witness to the resurrection by faith revealed to us by the apostles as witnesses here in the Word. Christ the Word gave us this Word. There's no dissonance between it. Christ the Word gave us the Word, and so even though we don't worship the book, we honor its author by revering the words in this book. We hold it in high esteem because Christ the Word is preeminent, not me. Not me. Christ is preeminent. So building up is for the house of of these families together as the family. Just like you bring something to a potluck, you bring something to church worship. You bring your heart, your study, your prayer, you bring a, a song from your heart all week. Your little bit matters. It honors God. Honor God in your order, in your worship, in the service, in submission to the leadership of the church, organizing those services, in gender roles, and in your deep interaction with the canon of Scripture and the Word. God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. Our membership should labor to reflect the order of God, and in doing so, reflect the very nature of God. We are to learn of God rather than our sinful selves and reflect the image of Christ, growing up in every way Christ. And the benefit to growth in godly order via God's word about himself is that we will proclaim a more true gospel to everyone who sees and hears. Be encouraged in that, for Christ is painting a picture that we can't paint with our limited view. Let us pray. God, thank you for this word, 1 Corinthians 14, 20 through 40. I pray you would expunge anything that's not rightly interpreted from our memories and that you would drill down deep by the power of your Spirit everything that is a right interpretation of your Word. Father, we stand on the shoulders of many, many, many centuries now of church members that have sought to rightly interpret this Word. And we're trying to, we're trying to borrow from the best of it and live in light of your clear revelation to us. Help us to live in harmony and decency and order. And help us, Lord, in this way to speak in, in ways that are clear and hopeful to the unbelievers and the outsiders that find themselves in our midst. We pray for these things in Jesus' name and all of God's children said.